Here's a story about a sinner. He used to be a winner who enjoyed a life of prominence and position. But the pressures at the office and his socialite engagements and his selfish wife's fanatical ambition, it turned him to booze and he got mixed up with a floozy and she led him to a life of indecision. The floozy made him spend his dole. She left him lying on Skid Row, a drunken lag in some Salvation Army mission. It's such a shame. It's such a shame. Oh, demon alcohol, sad memories I cannot recall. Who thought I would say, damn it all and blow it all on demon alcohol. I'd like to introduce you to my friend Rob, the artist. And allow me to introduce you to my friend Phil, the therapist. Rob, today's topic, alcohol. I found all kinds of songs about alcohol. Beastie Boys, Brass Monkey. Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. Cold Gin by Kiss. Red Red Wine, UB40. All these songs. But that song was by The Kinks. And it's in this sort of Dixieland jazz band funeral march kind of vibe. It's kind of a dark song about alcohol, but it's got some great lyrics about what can happen. Can you do me a favor, Phil? Sure. Can you read the second half of that? Second half of the the lyrics. I want to hear the second half of that story. Barley wine, pink gin. He'll drink anything. Port, pernod, or tequila... Rum, scotch, vodka on the rocks, as long as all his troubles disappeared. But he's messed up his life, went and beat up his wife, and the floozy's gone and found another sucker. She's going to turn him on to drink. She's going to lead him to the brink. And when his money's gone, she'll leave him in the gutter. It's such a shame. Oh, demon alcohol. In that middle part, memories... I cannot recall who thought I would fall a slave to demon alcohol. Sad memories I cannot recall. Who thought I would fall a slave to demon alcohol? Demon alcohol. Words of wisdom, kinks. And that's not the fun, playful view of alcohol. That's kind of the dark side of alcohol. And later in our episode, I want to talk about the benefits of not drinking alcohol. But for now... Did you know alcohol has been around for thousands of years? 12,000. One article I read said alcohol has been around for 12,000 years. You think about wine with the Greeks, with the Romans. Studies show that even mice and flies are drawn to alcohol. Alcohol has become kind of a cultural norm for us for centuries. Alcohol is not going away. It's not going away. It is ingrained in society. You've had a bad day, Phil. Here, have a drink, buddy. Hey, this is fantastic. Let's celebrate. Let's get some drinks. Let's celebrate. Let's meet and shoot shoot the bull. Shoot the crap. Yes. I think of all the great ads about alcohol. Budweiser. The frogs. You remember the frogs. Budweiser. Er, and the what's up campaign. 
right? Who will who will forget those? I uh, came across this really great ad for absinthe. You want to guess what year that came out? 1896. Oh wow! And nowadays the uh, U.S. spends 254 billion dollars in alcohol. They did in in 2018. The U.S. spent 254 billion dollars, up five percent from 2017, and the stats say that we're up 25 percent in May of 2020. The stats on the percentages of alcoholism have increased. It used to be one in 10 American adults had a struggle with alcohol or met the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. Now it's one in eight. The stats say that 21 million Americans have a struggle with addiction, including alcohol. Do you want to know how much we spend treating alcohol abuse? $600 billion every year. In 2017, 34 million Americans got a DUI. So when we get to the benefits of a sober lifestyle, we'll come back to that. But that's a big benefit. You never have to worry about getting a DUI if you don't drink anymore. And like you said, we will get to the, the benefits part. I just want to say up front here, we're not here to preach. Not here to preach. We're not here to shame anyone. We're not here to say, don't have a drink. We're just here to talk about alcohol. Now, indeed, it happens to be so that Phil and I both don't drink anymore. Full disclosure. Full disclosure, you're talking Full to, disclosure. So you know going in. Yeah, we're alcohol free. How long has it been for you, Rob? I'll have to think about that a minute. Let me think. Oh, five years. Uh, over five years. For me, it's a year and a half. I knew you had a few years on me. And being a therapist, I can't help but talk about it from a clinical perspective. So you can reel me in if I go off on a tangent too much. Rob, did you see the picture of Edward Munch? I did. That was from 1889. It's a self-portrait of the artist from The Scream. You know, in the picture, he looks definitely relaxed, but he's got a glass of something in front of him. And he was known to abuse alcohol. Apparently, he started before the age of 16, both for medicine and pleasure. So apparently, his dad was a military doctor and would prescribe Edward a good glass of port after he was ill. So it used to be medicine. I liked, um, I liked his, his later self-portrait. It was titled Scream. Indeed. There's another piece of art that I noticed in my research. Drunken Silenus. This piece of artwork comes from Anthony Van Dyke, 1620, and it features Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. He was kind of the party god. He was the spring break god, Dionysus. Drunken Silenus is this big older man that Bacchus is helping carry. He resembles a naked Santa Claus. He does resemble a naked Santa Claus. It's kind of a disturbing thought, isn't it? In, in case you've ever wondered <laughs> what a drunk naked Santa Claus looks like. 
We'll have to put that on our website, Rob, because people are going to want to see that. <laughs> the interesting thing here, too, actually, Phil, you credited Van Dyke. The thing is, it is a little ambiguous who actually painted this. They think that he did work on it, but it was at Ruben's studio. And this looks very much like a Ruben piece of art. But they think that there's actually three or four artists that ended up. So the grapes that you can see down there, uh huh. They, they think that was a separate artist. But he, he does get credit for it in some publications. You can see that. The details, they have a different style as you go around as you go around the painting. One thing that I like, there's a blurriness to most everyone there. It's as if they took a selfie, but it was out of focus. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or you, the viewer, is part of Part of part the, of the uh, party, event. part of the part drinking. of the party, also inebriated. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great catch. Another thing that's interesting about this painting, you typically don't see the physique of a naked Santa Claus in such glory. the The main focus of this painting is the torso. It's true. There's a lot of crazy things. If you just look at all the different people on this, it looks like a quite a party there. It is I, quite a party. I don't know if I don't want to go to this party, but. It seems like innocent fun. There's nothing probably too sinister going on. He'll probably just have a hangover tomorrow. Exactly. I was also checking out a great film about alcohol, Leaving Las Vegas. I had not seen this movie, but prior to the show, I sat down and watched it. Wow, what... First of all, it's a great work of art, in my opinion. The cinematography. I feel like that movie takes its time. The jazz music almost makes you feel drunk. The film was directed by Mike Figgis. It came out in 1995 and based on the semi-autobiographical 1990 novel of the same name by a man named John O'Brien. Now, I'll speak of him again in a moment. The movie stars Nicolas Cage as a suicidal alcoholic in Los Angeles, recently divorced, recently fired. Opening scene, pushing the grocery cart through the liquor store. I don't know that I've ever purchased that much liquor in my lifetime. He's like filled that cart with alcohol. He's decided to move to Las Vegas and drink himself to death. So he does, like you said, load a humongous supply of liquor into his BMW and gets drunk as he drives off to Nevada. I haven't seen this movie in quite a few years. And here's why, Phil. So sad. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, is a a it is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a tragedy, though. But I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. Also features Elizabeth Shue as his girlfriend, the prostitute. And she goes through some tough scenes where she's raped, abused, beaten. I mean, it's a heavy movie. She was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance. Nicolas Cage won the Academy Award, also a Golden Globe. It's really kind of a timeless piece. So I don't want to give too much away because it is worth seeing. It is a sad movie, so if you are going to watch it, be aware of that. Maybe plan your day so... You have something lighthearted to do afterwards. The main thing I want to say about that movie is that it gives a pretty accurate depiction of what alcoholism can do to you. He's slurring his speech. 
He's having trouble walking. Uh, like you said before, he loses his job. His wife had left him. We, we meet up with him after wife and son have left. And later on, you see the impact of alcohol. They do a pretty good job showing what a seizure looks like. Tremors, the symptoms of withdrawal. That's what you see with him. It's intense stuff. So the director, Mike Figgis, had a lot of conversations with Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue in the year before they made the film. He had them read the book, of course, but he encouraged them to do their own research. So Nicolas Cage binge drinking in Dublin for two weeks, and he had a friend videotape him so he could study his speech. Wow. He also visited hospitalized career alcoholics. There's an interesting term, career alcoholic. Elizabeth Shue, she interviewed a lot of prostitutes. Roger Ebert said, Cage and Shue make these cliches into unforgettable people. Then he went on to name the film the best of 1995 and included it in his best of the decade list. Now, I want to speak back to the original book that it was based on, the author John O'Brien. Tragically, O'Brien died by suicide two weeks after signing away the film rights to the novel. And the father feels that the book in the film was his suicide note. I could see that. It's tragic, but out of that came some great art. And we can all learn from the way Nick Cage acted and getting lost in that story. It is a, it's a heavy one, but it's one worth taking in. There's also a side theme of hope and love and connection in the midst of this sad space, the sad situation. At one point, Nicolas Cage says, you can never ask me to stop drinking. He made her agree to that. At one point, she asked him to go to a doctor, and he said, I'm not going to do that. On the flip side, she said that he couldn't complain about her career. There was acceptance. There was a a twisted, toxic, codependent version of acceptance in this movie. But then they both wanted to go back on both of those promises. That's healthy. Of course they would want to go back. Because in addiction treatment, we talk about enabling and codependency. And she's classic enabler. Getting him drinks, taking him out to drinks, putting up with his drinking. For them to at least have snapshots of, I'm not okay with this. It's, it's a sign that there's a little bit of realness and healthiness, a little bit of reality and health in their dialogue. Let's talk romance, Phil. Okay. Let's talk romance and alcohol. Here's what I've observed. How many relationships have started with alcohol? The old, let's meet for a drink, first date. That's a great first date. That's most first dates. The great thing about it is it can be quick, if need be. It can be happy hour, one drink. Yeah, it's not going to work because people really know in the first five seconds, right? Anyway, if they know there's no potential, <laughs> okay, we just have to sit through one drink and get the hell out. But when two people hit it off and it becomes, this happens, I've seen this a lot, where two people... They hit it off, they have this magic, and alcohol is part of that magic. It's quite common. Every time they get together, they drink. Every time they get together, they drink. Not saying they get 
drunk, drunk every time, but just for simple terms, let's say a drink or two, couple drinks. Right, but let's just say let's just say the drunk version of some of A really likes the drunk version of B, and vice versa. Okay. When that is the start of the relationship, and and it becomes so ingrained in the relationship, that alcohol is. It's like a garden, a messed up garden, because that's where we're growing from. We're growing from that soil that is perhaps inauthentic. What happens then if, say, person B decides not to drink anymore? Oh, I've been there. It's not easy. Person A may not recognize person B anymore, and person B may not, may realize that person A isn't quite who they thought they were. Or what they wanted. Or the kind of relationship they wanted. I tell my clients, this is kind of standard procedure protocol for newly recovery. In early recovery, the goal is don't date anybody for a year. That's a pretty lofty goal. And quite often, the person coming in for treatment is married. So it's an immediate adjustment for their spouse. But when it's a single person... Speaking of alcohol, there's a great movie called 28 Days with Sandra Bullock. And if you haven't seen this one, it shows what it's like to go through residential treatment. Sandra Bullock is the cute girl next door, and she gets drunk at her sister's wedding, falls into the wedding cake, and then has to go... She says, okay, fine, I'll go pick you up another cake. But she's drunk, right? She drives the limo into someone's front living room window. Her counselor is Steve Buscemi. At the end, Steve goes, people come to me and they ask, when can I date again? And I tell him, get a plant. If the plant is alive after a year, get a dog. If the dog is alive after a year, then you're ready to date again. So, (laughs) I'm sorry I took us off track a little bit there, but... No, that's great. It can be really tricky for the one person that doesn't drink. If B doesn't drink and A is still drinking, sometimes it can work. It has to be that A doesn't drink that much. Person A, if they're a normal, social, every now and then drinker, it can work. But invariably, I'm with you on what you're saying. The relationship is kind of created on a mask or a facade. I'm used to you as cute, drunk, buzzed boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. And when you take that, you take that away and it can be really awkward. Time and time again, I hear this. I don't know if it's the same for women, but I hear my male clients say something like this. How was your first real relationship? Well, obviously I, I was drunk. Obviously, I'd had a few drinks. Of course, I had to have a couple drinks before I could go talk to my future girlfriend, my future wife. It feels like the concept of liquid courage is real. I don't know if it's the same for women. I feel like it's pretty prominent for men. Liquid courage is something that women... They need that too, I think. ...that I have heard them discuss. Let's talk a little bit about how alcohol can influence art. Earlier, we talked about Edward Munch and how he started drinking at age 16. Drinking was a part of his life. You have Ernest Hemingway, the author, who's a well-known alcoholic. Eddie Van Halen. 
I worshipped Eddie Van Halen with the hammer-ons on the neck of the guitar. He's the god of 80s rock. If you don't know who he is, Phil just did a good description. He's a spectacular guitarist. From a musical family. Everyone in that family was musical. Absolutely, including his father, which I'll talk about in a second. But I want to I read a quote from Eddie Van Halen. This was from around 2012. He had, at the time, stopped drinking and had recorded his first album, Sober. Eddie says, The funny thing is about the whole alcoholism thing. It wasn't really the partying. It was like, I don't mean to blame my dad, but when I started playing in front of people, I get so damn nervous. I ask him, Dad, how do you do it? That's when he handed me the cigarette and the drink. He was 12. And I go, oh, this is good. It works. For so long, it really did work. And I certainly didn't do it to party. I would drink and then I would go to my room and write music. Then later he says, when they say, you can't say I will never drink again, I honestly say I will never drink again. It's a whole new world. I'm 57 years old and I know I'm not going to live to be 114. So I can't say I'm halfway done. It's the soul and truth, but this is the first record I've made sober. There's a certain place that you have to get to where things just flow. And I have to say that when I drank, it might have created a false sense of getting there easier. I'm not comparing myself to any of these famous artists in history, but you know everybody, guys like Mozart, they were all alcoholics. And it does somehow enable you to lower your inhibitions. At the same time, it also gives you a false sense that what you're doing is great. Now I'm so aware of everything that sometimes I'm afraid to pick up my guitar. It's amazing what art can do with a clear head. And it's amazing how artists lean on, you talked about Eddie at 12, here you go, son, have a cigarette, have a drink. I understand Eddie also struggled with lung cancer. And then when he was trying to stop drinking, of course, he went on to pills. And, and what strikes me about his quote as well is how his father was the one who introduced it to him. And in retrospect, the father probably just had good intentions. Now that I don't drink, I have actually thought in my mind, what will it be like if my son or daughter wants to have a drink? And it's a, it's a dilemma, but it's a natural process, even genetically for the parent to pass down their drinking habits. You know, think about your family tree. If you've got an alcoholic in there, you, you just might want to be aware that you might have the gene, the reinforcement pathways in your brain that will get you to an addiction. I like to tell people it's green light, red light. An addict, when they have that drink, it's, it's progressive, it's over time, but the pathway in their brain goes, green light, bring on the drinks. It's like Nicolas Cage. You don't stop after one or two. A normal drinker, normies, as they're called, social drinker, they have a drink, they feel good, they have another, they feel a little buzzed. They have another, they might actually get a red light. A, ooh, I don't know, I don't feel so good. I got to drive home, maybe I should stop. That's their process, but... An alcoholic, Eddie Van Halen, line them up, let's knock them down. Of course, there are, are you, we're talking a lot about alcoholics, but there are 
plenty of reasons one may quit drinking besides being an alcoholic. There's a lot of benefits for sure. I, for one, did not have a drinking problem, but I had a small health thing pop up, nothing serious, but the best way to combat it was one of the top things that was don't Stop drink. drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I decided, okay, well, I won't drink for like three months. Six months go by. A year goes by. I didn't miss it. And I didn't think that at the time, I think it was when I hit it, when I hit one year, then I thought, well, it's in, this is interesting. I wonder, no, I don't, you know what? I think I'm done. <laughs> so it just hit me because I had just felt the effects of not drinking for a year. I realized, wow, I'm done with that. And I'm really happy about it. A lot of my clients that struggle with drinking problems, or I see a lot of new clients that want to cut back harm reduction, we call it. I tell them, if you can make it a year, you have crossed all of the major anniversaries. It could be literally your wedding anniversary. It could be the anniversary your dad died. It could be Cinco de Mayo, St. Patrick's Day. Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever. The, if you can get through a year of that, you've done a full lap around the sun, so to speak. I've heard people, this isn't really, this doesn't really apply to me, but I've heard people talk about this where they stopped drinking and then they lost all their friends because the friends that they're referring to, well, they would all get together and drink. There's an old, there's an old AA phrase, when you stop drinking, you need new play things, playmates, and playgrounds. New playmates, new playthings, new playgrounds. I see this a lot with my blue-collar plumbers, electricians, general contractors. It's a drinking world. I also see it in sales, finance, marketing. People take their clients out, you're entertaining. Also, you see it in the nonprofit at a nonprofit gala event. They're trying to raise money for worthwhile causes, cancer, children who need funding, the arts. People are drinking heavy at those. So, yes, I've even told my clients, have you considered a different line of work if drinking is a part of your line of work? For example, people that own restaurants, people that are wine distributors. Everyone listening has known someone who has had a terrible drinking problem, and you know exactly how horrific and how lives can be destroyed in so many ways, not just the person, but it affects everyone around them. That's a great transition to say at the same time, what if we look at the benefit of not drinking? What have you enjoyed since you stopped drinking? The one that kind of surprised me was that I am less anxious. So I struggle with anxiety, and I would often drink to help just kind of relax a little bit, calm me down. And I defined myself as a problem drinker, but not necessarily an alcoholic, which alcohol use disorder moderate is the new diagnosis. I started drinking pretty regularly. Most nights I would have one to three drinks. When I stopped doing that, I actually was less anxious. My mental health improved and I could 
The stress was still there, but I felt like I could manage it better without alcohol. That one surprised me. When you have memories, they're not blurry. So if there's a party or there's some some event like you, you were speaking of, you the clarity is fantastic. The sleeping better, you look better. Alcohol can take a toll on your body. It's poison. I'll just say it's poison. I think it's poison. It is poison. So come on, people. <laughs> anyway, your memory improves. You look better. You worry less. You don't have to spend all that money on alcohol. Another one that I didn't see, uh, I didn't anticipate was I probably lost 10 pounds. I didn't really weigh myself, but if you're drinking consistently and you remove that from your diet, it's going to help your weight. But you also won't have the hangovers. You will probably go to the gym. I personally have gone to the gym or in some cases just worked out, but I've worked out consistently for close to 500 days in a row now. If I were drinking... You couldn't do that. That wouldn't happen. You will have deeper connections with people. You will you will get to know someone's true self. They will get to know your true self. Again, we said at the beginning, we're not here to preach. We're not here to change your behavior. But maybe we're well, here... maybe I am. Oh, maybe he is. <laughs> but we're here to make you think. On that note, Phil, you've got a good closer here to make us think on the outro. Let's hear it. In closing, I want to share a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. First, you take a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. Then the drink takes you. Thanks for listening to the Artist and the Therapist podcast. Subscribe. Contact us at info at T-A-A-T-T podcast dot com.